You're listening to the podcast of Christ Walk Church in Fernandina Beach, Florida, where we exist to inspire people to follow Jesus every day. We hope that these messages encourage and challenge you to live for something more. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can find us online at thechristwalk.com. Thanks again for listening. Now here's today's message. She's cute like her mother. Um, Yeah, speaking of her mother... um, uh, Sarah and I, we, we crossed a, a pretty awesome milestone yesterday. Um, it was 17 years that we have been married yesterday. Um, the, the book of Proverbs in chapter 18 says that he who finds a wife finds a treasure and that he receives favor from the Lord. And I am a walking, living, breathing example of that. And I'm so thankful for this lady right down front And I'm excited that now in our 17th year of marriage that we get to um, engage more fully in ministry together because now her office is right across the hall from me. It's something that we've dreamed about for a long time and the Lord just opened doors. And so thank all of you um, for giving us the opportunity to kind of uh, uh, wrap our arms around this calling that God has placed on our lives and walk it out together. We're having a blast. I wouldn't want to do it with anybody other than you. I love you. Uh, Today, we are wrapping up a series out of the book of Psalms, um, where we've been taking a look at a a handful of different Psalms, not from the standpoint of what what they say to us, what they teach us about expressions of worship, because that's kind of the, the mindset that what we normally look for whenever we're reading through the book of Psalms. And that's what the bulk of the book is about. But rather, we've been looking at these Psalms in order to, to kind of uh, create some building blocks and, and form a biblical worldview together. And um, a worldview is simply a means by which we interpret the experiences and, um, and interactions that we have with the world and the people around us. And, and at Christ Walk Church, we believe that, that the Bible, God's holy word, the, the holy scriptures, that that should be the primary lens through which we interpret all aspects of life. And all the way back in part one of this series, uh, we took a look at Psalm chapter one, and we talked about the, the two roads that are presented there, the two paths, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. And we discovered that our desire determines our direction and that our direction ultimately determines our destination, where we're going to end up. And then the second kind of step or the second building block we put into place was Psalm chapter 2, which speaks, it has an overarching theme of God's authority uh, and his sovereignty. And so uh, we learned that, that when it comes to God, there is no refuge from him. There's only refuge in him. And then in part three, we looked at Psalm 23, uh, quite possibly the, the most famous, the most well-known of all of the Psalms. And we discovered that when we submit our lives to the leadership and to the guidance and the direction of the great shepherd, that we can have the assurances of his provision, his protection, his presence, and his pursuit in our lives. And then last week, we took a look at Psalm chapter 8, Um, And we learned that in order to know ourselves, we must first know the God of the universe because you and I, we were created in his image. And not only did he create us, but he cares for us and he's crowned us. And we talked about the fact that, let's face it, God is crazy about us. He just loves us. 
And so today I'm going to do my best to put a button on this this, uh, series, and we're going to take a look um, at Psalm chapter 82 that's going to be kind of our final building block um, for today in our establishment of this biblical worldview. So if you got your smart device or, or um, a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me or swipe with me. Um, Psalm chapter 82. We'll land there in just a moment. Uh, in 2016, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, Netflix. Anybody ever heard of Netflix? I don't know. It's a small upstart company. You know, no big deal. Um, they released a brand new series. Netflix in 2016 released a brand new series called Stranger Things, which took the world by storm. And in case you're unfamiliar and you've been living under a rock for the past few years, uh, in the show, after the strange disappearance of one of their friends, a group of children discover a gateway to a parallel world known in the show as the Upside Down that exists within the same time and, and, uh, and space as the one in which they are currently living. And while Stranger Things is uh, it's certainly a fictional show. In many ways, it's an accurate depiction of uh, the reality that you and I have in regard to what's presented in the Bible, with today's psalm in particular being a perfect example. If you and I are going to establish a fully biblical worldview, then we must accept the fact that the world in which we live is a combination of things both seen and things unseen. And while we may not be able to to see these other things with our physical eyes by faith, you and I, we can come to the realization that these things do, in fact, exist. And so that's what we're going to talk about today because we can't have a fully biblical worldview if everything that we talk about just exists here in the physical realm. There is a spiritual realm. There's stuff taking place all around us. And the Bible is very clear in a number of instances of which Psalm 82 points us directly to that, that we need to be aware that it's not just what we see. It's not just what we feel, that there's something so much bigger going on around us. And so Psalm 82 um, gives us some insight into this. So um, let's all buckle up because today's going to be fun. Uh, so put on, yeah, put on your seatbelts, your big boy pants, and um, we're going we're gonna to jump in together. Psalm 82, starting with verse 1, it says, God presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. How long will you hand down unjust decisions By favoring the wicked, give justice to the poor and the orphan, uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute, continuing on in verse four, rescue the poor and helpless, deliver them from the grasp of evil people. But these oppressors know nothing. They are so ignorant. They wander about in darkness while the whole world is shaken to the core. I say, You are gods. You are all children of the Most High. Verse 7. But you will die like mere mortals and fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. 
Now, before we jump in and we start breaking down this psalm, there's a couple things of note that you and I need to be aware of. Number one, the the majority of the psalms we would attribute to King David, who um, many of us know uh, very well from the scriptures. Um, You know, he's the giant killer and the shepherd boy and everything. The the overwhelming majority of the psalms are attributed to him, but there are a handful of psalms that are attributed to other people. And this is one of those psalms. This is known as a psalm of Asaph, a guy named Asaph, A-S-A-P-H. And Asaph was, he was a worship leader that was appointed by King David after the Ark of the Covenant was returned to Jerusalem from from the house of Obed-Edom. And Psalm chapter 50, and then Psalms 73 through 83, they are all known as the Psalms of Asaph. He's, he's given credit for each of those. And each of those Psalms, 50 and then 73 through 83, they deal with the theme as this one does. They deal with the theme of the Lord's judgment. And in addition to being a worship leader, um, 2 Chronicles uh, ch- uh, chapter 29, verse 30, um, identifies Asaph as a seer or one who can prophesy, future, uh, prophesy about future events. So it's important for us to know that, uh, to have some, some context uh, into what's going on whenever, we, uh, whenever we're looking into um, this, this particular chapter. And so that's who Asaph was. And um, Psalm 82 It is a prophetic psalm. Uh, It points to things, it points us to things, it highlights and underscores some things that haven't happened yet, but they are in the process of happening and they're ultimately going to be fulfilled in the future. And it underscores the existence of the spiritual realm, those things that are unseen, happening or taking place alongside the physical realm, those things that you and I, we can see very clearly. We can reach out and we can touch and taste and feel. And it's, it's very clear that, that we're in the midst of that. And, and this psalm, is, it's broken down really into three sections that highlight a different aspect of the spiritual realm. First, it highlights the judge. Then secondly, it highlights the judged. And then third, it highlights the judgment. And so if you're taking notes, maybe you want to write this down. We're going to start right here with the highlighting of the judge. And in verses 1 and 2, I'll read back over it. It says, God presides over heaven's court. He pronounces judgment on the heavenly beings. How long will you hand down unjust decisions by favoring the wicked? And so right here off the bat at the beginning of Psalm chapter 82, it's establishing once again God as the authoritative judge. It's, it's a reminder of what we talked about a few weeks ago, that, that he is he's the ultimate authority. He is completely sovereign over all of creation. And it says that, that he's presiding over heaven's court. All right, now, in, in some translations, um, we would get things uh, talking about heaven's court. We would hear like um, uh, the sons of God or, um, or gods and angels or the divine council is this idea that's presented. And for a lot of people, this is a very foreign concept. It's, it's very weird. There's some, there's some weird kind of interesting kind of crazy things in the Bible. And, and if we're just reading it just to read it, we can kind of gloss over these things and not really bring into the, the full breadth of, of everything that's taking place here and what the scriptures are actually communicating. 
thing. And so um, uh, when, when we're talking about the divine counselor, when we're talking about this, this heavenly court, um, it, the, the original uh, Hebrew word is uh, Elohim. And it, it's spelled like this right here, Elohim. E-L-O-H-I-M, all right? Elohim. And um, I mentioned this uh, last week, talking in, in our message, so the Elohim. And, and this is translated as gods, spiritual beings, angels, etc. But it's also used in place of God himself. Like, not just Elohim, like spiritual beings, but Elohim, as in the God of all the gods. Is everybody with me? All right. A few people. Okay, cool. (laughs) Cool. All right. And so, so whenever we see Elohim, we, we determine what the scriptures are talking about based on the context in in which we see it. And so we have here, God, Elohim surrounded by the Elohim. We have the Elohim of all Elohim, God. He is the, the supreme ruler, the complete and total authority. And he is surrounded by his divine counsel, the, the Elohim, the gods, the angels, the other spiritual beings. All right. I promise this is going to make sense in just a second. So just like God desires to share his authority with humans, which we've talked about. He also desires to share his authority with other spiritual beings as well. And you guys know there there are spiritual beings out there. This is not a brand new concept. We know of angels. We know of demons. These are things that we talk about quite regularly. Hopefully today, after leaving here, you're going to be able to see some of this stuff in a little bit of a different light. But God desires to to share his authority. He is a, at, at his nature, he is a giver. And God created all of these things and he gave us his authority. He passed it down to us for, for us to steward both in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. And so that's what's taking place here. And just as humans, just as you and I, we, we go all the way back to Eden, just as you and I, through Adam and Eve, we mishandled our God-given authority, well, so did the Elohim. So did the divine counsel. So did these other spiritual beings. And we see here a picture of what is taking place in the physical realm, mirroring that which is taking place in the spiritual realm, okay? It's a mirror image of each other. The things that, that happen here on this earth are directly affected by the things that are happening in the spiritual realm. That when something is, is taking place, when, when something negative, or, or it could be something positive even, when anything that takes place here, it, it's, it's a mirror of what is going on in the spiritual realm around us. And so, uh, for an example, like consider the division that is taking place just right here in the United States. The division that's taking place in the United States alone, the decisions that are being made um, by our government leaders and others in authority that are in, that are in opposition to God and his word. It, it's, it's not just Democrat versus Republican. It's not just liberal versus conservative. There's something so much bigger here at play. It's, it's not just physical man deciding to do things in the physical realm. The things that are taking place are, are happening on, on such a larger scale. And, and Paul, he, he, he teaches us, this in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12. 
because he wants us to know this. He says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. We're not fighting on a, on a physical plane. Our battle is not with other human beings is what he's saying. We're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. Against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. So Paul is saying our battle is not a physical one. Our battle is a spiritual one. We are in battle with those entities that are promoting rebellion against the one true God. Okay? And so we see, this, we see these rebellions played out, and, and it's a cyclical thing that happens over and over and over. But the first few chapters of Genesis give us some insight into what these rebellions are, okay? We start off in Genesis um, chapter 2 through 4, uh, these three rebellions. Genesis 2 through 4 is the first of them, and it highlights the rebellion. You know this story from, uh, from the Garden of Eden. Genesis 2 through 4 highlights the rebellion of God's image bearers following the temptation of the serpent. That the, the, the devil came in and he deceived Adam and Eve to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is the tree that God told him, you, you can have anything else in the garden, but you got to stay away from this one. And because of their sin, not only was, because of this choice, not only was, was sin introduced, but also death was introduced on the earth. And it resulted in Adam and Eve being banished from Eden. And Eden, in, in its original form and creation, Eden was a, it was a high place, and it was a place where actually the, the physical realm of earth overlapped with the spiritual realm of heaven. You may remember um, from the creation story that, that God, he would, he would walk in the garden in the cool of the evening, and he would be in the presence of Adam and Eve each and every day. But it's because they were in Eden, and, and heaven and earth overlapped. But because of Adam and Eve's choice, they were banished from Eden. And there was a gap that was created now because of sin. Death entered the world, and now there was a gap between human beings and God's presence because of that rebellion. The second rebellion we see in, is in Genesis chapter 6, which highlights the rebellion of these Elohim, part of the divine council, who trying to take matters into their own hands and restore this connection between the physical realm and the spiritual realm and give humans access to eternal life once again, uh, just like they had in Eden. They, they came down from their place in heaven and they created a superhuman race known as the Nephilim. These were like giants and they were the, the heroes of old that we hear these, these incredible stories of throughout the annals of history. And they created this through actually engaging in sexual intercourse with human women. There is some crazy stuff in the Bible if you'll read it. It's wild. And because of this rebellion that took place now, there's, there's this, this race of people that was never meant to exist. And so God has to take matters. He, he's he's got to do And so he wipes out all of creation with a flood. Right? You guys know this. And then... He found, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so, so the, the human race was, was, once again, it was spared through Noah. 
Then we get to the, the third rebellion, which is in Genesis 10 and 11, and it highlights the rebellion of man who sought to restore the overlap of heaven and earth. They, they took matters into their own hands, and they wanted to, to get back what they once had in Eden. And so they built what is known as a ziggurat tower or a temple, which was thought to be a place where, where heaven and earth intersected. And God caused the people at this time to, to speak different languages and he scattered them across the earth and the place was named Babel, which means confusion. It's where we later get the term Babylon and, and, and the, the, it, it, the, the name for that, that empire that was created that stood in opposition to God and his people for so long. And each of these rebellions, both in the Garden of Eden with the Nephilim and at the Tower of Babel, each of these rebellions was driven by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This is how the devil operates. It's, his game plan has been the same since the beginning of time. And it's the, same, it's the same game plan that he's using against you and me today. And in simpler terms, the way that we've seen this play out over the course of history and the, the way that it affects us directly, even in our personal lives, is, is that we have, because of all of this, we have a desire in our life for three primary things. You want to simplify the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We, we have a desire in our life for money, for sex, and for power. That is what is fueling all of the stuff that's taking place as, as the physical realm mirrors the spiritual realm. And when God scattered the nations following this third rebellion at Babel, the Bible tells us that he allotted or he assigned the rebellious Elohim, those that had turned their back on him and tried to take matters into their own hands, he assigned them to those places where he had scattered human beings as well. But he kept the, the nation and the people of Israel for himself. And we read about this in a couple of different places. In, in Deuteronomy 4 is the first one. He says, uh, verses 16 through 18, he says, So do not corrupt yourselves by making an idol in any form, whether of a man or woman, an animal on the ground, a bird in the sky, a small animal that scurries along the ground, or a fish in the deepest sea. Continuing. And when you look up into the sky and see the sun, moon, and stars, all the forces of heaven don't be seduced into worshiping them. See, it's establishing the fact that this, this spiritual realm is very real and that there are other forces at play here. He says, the Lord your God gave them to all the peoples of the earth. When he scattered them at Babel, he assigned those, those spiritual forces, that, the, 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 those, those spiritual entities and beings. He scattered them across the earth as well. He says, remember that the Lord rescued you from the iron smelting furnace of Egypt in order to make you his very own people and his special possession, which is what you are today. So the Lord said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give these other nations of the world over to these spiritual entities that have turned their back on me, but I'm going to keep the nation of Israel for myself and I'm going to set it apart and it's going to be different. And when we read this, it, it brings to mind the, the gods of uh, the false gods of Egypt and Greece and Rome, and there are many others. We talk about mythology. We learn about these things in school, and they're often represented by various animals or heavenly bodies like the sun and the moon and the stars. And we, we talk about these things as being false gods, but they're not false because they don't exist, they're very real. 
These are demonic antichrist entities that exist in the spiritual realm. These are not false gods because they don't exist. They are false gods because they are not the one true God. They stand in opposition to him. Deuteronomy 32 Verses 8 and 9, it gives us some further insight into this. It says, when the Most High assigned lands to the nations at Babel again, when he divided up the human race, he established the boundaries of the people according to the number in his heavenly court. Then he says, for the people of Israel belong to the Lord. Jacob is his special possession. So what we see happening here is that God hands over the nations to worship the other lesser Elohim. And following their rebellion, God basically said, looking at the divine council, the Elohim, looking at the humans on earth who continue to to be disobedient toward them, he said, fine, have it your way. And so he handed them over to their own desires. We see this happening time and time and time again throughout the arc of Scripture. But he protected the nation of Israel as his special possession, out of which he would raise up a redeemer who would restore connectivity between heaven and earth once and for all and would reestablish a way for you and I, for the human race, to once again have access to eternal life for the people all across the earth. That's Jesus Christ. And we see the nation of Israel, and as we re- they get themselves into trouble whenever they intermingle in these, uh, uh, with these other nations around them. And they, they fall prey to worshiping those nations, gods, and everything, because God had his hand on them. And he said, you're my special people. And we see the nation of Israel, they, they fall into the trap of worshiping other gods whenever they get in cahoots with these other nations that are around them, because it was never meant to be that way for the nation of Israel. They were the pure, they were the spotless one, they were the bloodline through which God was going to raise up Jesus Christ and bring redemption back to humanity for what was lost all the way back in Eden. Are you following me? Okay, so that's the judge. And God is establishing this for the reason that he has to bring judge, uh, he has to bring his judgment as the, as the sovereign, as the, as the supreme authority, that he has to be the judge and bring judgment on his creation who's decided to do things different than what is according to his plan. And so that's what Asaph is highlighting there in those first couple verses. Then the next thing that he's highlighting is not the judge, but he's highlighting the judged those who are going to be judged. In verses 3 through 5, it says, Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. But these oppressors know nothing. They are so ignorant. They wander about in darkness while the whole world is shaken to the core. See, in in our quest to fulfill our desires for for money and for sex and for power, what often happens is the poor and the fatherless and the afflicted and the needy, they become overlooked and ostracized. We've seen this play out time and time again in our culture alone and, and in our world as a whole. And, and um, I, it, it makes me think of, um, we're, we're about to celebrate, or I don't know if it's really celebrate, we're about to memorialize 20 years of um, the, the uh, terrorist attacks on uh, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. 
and the, the underlying things that were taking place there, it's, it's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. It's, it's the, the man's desire for, for power and for money and for, and for sex and, and those things and how we see that corrupting man. And we see um, these puppet masters in the spiritual realm uh, behind the scenes orchestrating what's happening in, in the physical realm and causing uh, destruction and chaos. We see it in, in, our, in our world today and in the events that are taking place in Afghanistan. We see it in the global epidemic that we're facing with human trafficking. We're seeing it here on our domestic soil with the struggle and the issue in and around the issue of abortion. All of these things, the very core of these issues being fueled by man's desire for money and sex and power that are usurping or they're, they're overshadowing God's call for justice in the earth. In verse 5, God, he's speaking directly to these oppressors, directly to these, these rebellious entities. And he's saying that they know nothing, that, that they're ignorant, and that they wander about in darkness. And when you read and when, when you do some deeper study here, there's, there's, a lot of, there, there's kind of a line between um, where a lot of the scholars stand. Some scholars uh, debate as to whether or not this passage is, is speaking of the Elohim and the divine council. And others debate that it's talking about the, the rulers, the kings, and the judges of mankind, like actual physical human beings who are placed in positions of authority, presidents and prime ministers and, and kings and judges and things of that nature. And as I read and as I study, my interpretation is that they're both right. God's talking to, to both of these groups and that they're, they're mirror images of each other, that we have one group that's operating in the spiritual realm and the other group that is operating in kind in the physical realm. And when there's an earthly leader that makes a decision that stands in contrast to the word of God, that leader is being influenced by a spiritual power of darkness. That's what I believe. When the president of the United States reneges on previous statements and says, I've changed my mind, I don't believe that life happens at conception, that's not because he's just made up his mind in and of himself. He is being influenced by a power of spiritual darkness that is pushing him in that direction. They're making these decisions in the spiritual realm that is influencing the physical realm, making decisions based on their ignorance or what they think is right rather than following the direction of God the Father. When someone is ignorant, they are unaware. And these powers that are at work, they're ignorant because they are unaware of the fact that they are not in control. And that's the issue that is at place. And as a result, God says that as a result, they're, they're wandering around in the darkness. And in the darkness is the place where death and evil lurks. You've experienced this before, perhaps. In the middle of the night, nature is calling. And in your desire to not open your eyes and not get fully awake, you stumble to the bathroom only to catch your pinky toe on the side of the dresser. Because in the dark is where evil and death lurks. You've experienced this while stumbling to your child's room to change their diaper and give them a bottle. And you step barefoot on the corner of a Lego block and you find out very quickly if you are living right. 
Because in the darkness is where the danger lurks. That's why Jesus Christ came on the scene and he said, I'm the light of the world. What he does is he exposes everything. He points out those pockets, those traps of danger. When, when there's a light shining in the place, darkness cannot exist. And, and the, the pathway, the, the guidelines, the directives are very, very clear. And everything comes into great clarity. But when we wander around in darkness, the end result is never good. And so when we find ourselves mixed up in the physical realm with the darkness of the spiritual realm, the end result is never going to be good. What God is saying is that that because of their ignorance, because of their wandering around in darkness, that their decisions are not helping anything. They're only making matters worse. They're causing the world to be shaken and unstable at its very core. And God is saying it was never meant to be this way. All you had to do was do things my way, the way that I said, the way that the path and the plan that that I was laying out, but you took matters into your own hands and you tried to go your own direction. And so now you're lost and ignorant and wandering around in the dark and it's led you to the place of, this is the reason why the world is the way that it is. And we are in need of redemption and restoration. And so Jesus comes on this scene right at the beginning of his earthly ministry where we're recognizing that because of man's quest for sex and and money and power that that the, the poor and the fatherless and the afflicted and the needy that they are overlooked, Jesus comes on the scene and and he he goes to the he goes to the synagogue and he takes down the scroll. And he opens it up to read. And in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, this is what we see. This is when he came, talking about Jesus, when he came to the village of Nazareth, his boyhood home, he went as usual to the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read the scriptures. The scroll of Isaiah the prophet was handed to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where this was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. Verse 20 continues. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down. All eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently, and then he began to speak to them. The scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled This very day. What Jesus is saying is, see where we got it all wrong back in Eden, where we got it all wrong with the Nephilim, where we got it all wrong at Babel. And because of that rift that was was taking place and because of the the overshadowing and the ostracization of, of the poor and the needy and the helpless and the destitute and the afflicted, where we got it all wrong. I've come to bring restoration. I've come to restore the balance where where we missed the mark and where we we separated ourselves from the presence of God and where we distanced the physical realm from the spiritual realm of heaven. Jesus said, I've come to make a way. I've come back in to bring everything into the right and that gap that was created between the heavenly and and, and the earth. Jesus said, I'm gonna fill it up with a cross. 
so that we have a way back to restoration. What the rebellion of the divine council desired to put into place, Jesus has come to overturn. And on the last day of judgment, when Jesus returns once and for all, he will defend in its final form the poor, the fatherless, the afflicted, and the needy. That's why he came. That's why he came. You and I, that's us. We are the poor. We are the fatherless. We are the afflicted. We are the needy. Jesus came for us so that we could return back to where heaven and earth overlap and we could once again have access to God, our Father. So Asaph highlights for us the judge. He highlights for us, number two, the judged. And then number three, in the closing verses of this chapter, he highlights the judgment. Verses six through eight. God says, I say, you are God's. You are children of the Most High, but you will die like mere mortals and fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, and judge the earth, for all the nations belong to you. Let me be very clear about something. Judgment for the world and for you and for me is coming. It's inevitable. There's nothing we can do to avoid it, You cannot stop that train. It is barreling down the tracks. It was moving in this direction from the beginning of time. There's nothing that we can do to stop it. And this passage, it serves as a warning for these fallen beings and anyone who submits to their control. It says that, that you may consider yourself something special because you're the Elohim but you're going to fall and you're going to die just like mere mortals. It's inevitable. And so death is inevitable for these entities and anyone who bows their knee to them and lives their life according to them. We hear of this in Revelation 20, verse 10. It says, Then the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the judgment joining the beast and the false prophet. And there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So knowing that this judgment is taking place, a biblical worldview takes the the standpoint that, that you and I, we must stand firm in these last days. We cannot allow ourselves to be deceived lest we face the same fate. Jesus talked about this in in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. He says, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And then the king will say to those on his rights, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? 
And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, away with you, you cursed ones. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. And then they will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth. When you refuse to help the least of my brothers and sisters, you are refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous will go into eternal life. Verse eight of Psalm 82 is a plea for all of this to happen and soon. It's what Asaph is is crying out to God for on behalf of the people, on behalf of the nations of the earth. He's asking for this to happen and for it to take place soon. And and it both foreshadows and echoes exactly how Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6.10, which says, May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus taught us to pray that way. May your kingdom come soon. Don't delay. Without hesitation. See, verse 8 identifies Yahweh as the supreme ruler and the final authority despite the claims of our enemy, the devil, who in Luke chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, he lays claims to this earth. He says, I will give you the glory of these kingdoms when he's tempting Jesus in the, in the wilderness. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and, and the authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone that I please. I will give it all to you if you worship me. But Asaph writes in verse 8, it foretells of the resolution of the rebellion from Genesis 11. In Babel, where all the nations were scattered, it's a call for God to come, for Christ to return, and for once and for all, for all the nations to belong to him. In other words, what he's crying out for, what he's calling out for is, is, is God, would, would you come and do for all the nations what you've done for your nation of Israel? God's chosen people? Would you come and do for everyone what you've done for this one nation? And through Jesus, you and I, we've been, we've been grafted in. We've been brought underneath that covenant that God put into place with his holy people, the people of Israel. And one day, Jesus, the son of God, both 100% God and 100% man, both fully spiritual and fully physical is going to return to this earth and he's gonna redeem the nations once and for all and free them from the clutches of the spiritual principalities and powers of darkness that have plagued them all this time. And today, those of us that have placed our trust, our hope, in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we can join in with both Asaph and with John the Revelator, and we can ask the Lord to come. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, 17, the very close of the Bible. John writes this, the spirit and the bride say, come. 
Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty, let anyone who is, who is thirsty to come. Let anyone who desires to drink freely from the water of life, he who is faithful witness to all these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And he closes out by saying, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. See, for those of us who have exchanged the path of the wicked for the path of the righteous, we need not fear his coming. For those of us who have recognized his his sovereignty and his ultimate authority over this earth and all of creation, we need not fear his coming. For those of us who have submitted our lives to the great shepherd, his leadership, his guidance, his direction, we need not fear his coming. For those of us that know God as creator, as caregiver, as commissioner, we need not fear his coming. The heart of God for his church in these last days is for a spotless bride to rise up and present herself to the bridegroom and ask that he not wait any longer. We're not going to find redemption in power, in sex, in money. We're not going to find redemption through greater enlightenment or becoming a God or even building a tower all the way to heaven. Our only hope today for redemption is through Jesus Christ. That's it. Jesus Christ is the one that is going to bring a restoration for what we broke down so many thousands of years ago. He's going to return for his people and he is going to set everything right. So I don't know about you, but I echo those sentiments. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. It's a scary prayer to pray because when that happens, all of this goes away. I know I'm 40, but I'm not dead yet. I still got a lot of living left to do. But I'd rather go ahead and experience the hope that I have for eternity with my heavenly father. So I've been making that my prayer and I hope that you will too. I hope that you'll join me in joining John the Revelator and joining Asaph and joining all those throughout history who have prayed, come Lord Jesus and do it soon. But can you say that today? Can you say that with confidence and hope? If not, you need to get yourself right. You need to make your life right. You need to surrender and submit yourself to the plan of God through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. For those of us that have placed our hope and trust in Jesus, we know that what lies ahead is so much better than what we're experiencing right now. That because of Jesus, the best is yet to come. And so if that's you, if you're here today watching on with us online, if things aren't right in here, and you're not submitted to Christ the way that you need to be, and, and, and if, if, if God came today that you wouldn't be ready, if Christ returned to this earth today to, to bring into restoration and balance and full redemption all that we've talked about, 
you're not ready for that, you can make yourself ready right now by praying this simple prayer. It's gonna be on the screen here if you need it. If that's you, in person, online, Maybe you're praying this for the first time. Maybe you need to recommit your life. Maybe you prayed a prayer like this many, many months or, or years ago. Since that time, you've, you've drifted away and you're like, I, I, need to, I need to get things right. I want to be sure. That's you. I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. I know where I'm headed. I know where my hope is. I want to take as many people there as I possibly can. So if that's you this morning, would you pray this prayer along with me? Heavenly Father, I admit that I'm a sinner and that I'm lost without you. I believe that Jesus died in my place, making a way for us to have a relationship. And today, I choose to follow Jesus in his way for the rest of my life. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Christ Walk Church podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. To find out more information about Christ Walk Church, including our service times, how to connect with us on social media, and the ministry opportunities we have for you and your family, simply visit our website at thechristwalk.com. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget, because of Jesus, the best is yet to come.